Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Episode 8 of the REPA Radio Hour. The EAL Radio Show presents Eastern history, stories, and memories by the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. We're very fortunate to have at our disposal over 40 years of history as told by pilots of this great airline. Your producer and Admiral John Engel edited a book titled The Best of Repartee after 30 years of magazines had been published and distributed to REPA members, affiliates, and spouses of those that had passed away. The magazine was a standard which other pilot retiree associations strive to equal. Although repartee is no longer published in magazine format, Editor Captain Jim Holder has now published a smaller version, newsletter, but it's still called Repartee. Congratulations, Jim, and it was a job well done on your first issue. We're hoping to continue broadcasting great articles as they become available by the Eastern family of employees here on the show, the REPA Radio Hour. Reaper 10, you're cleared for takeoff. Wind 10024, runway 13 right, cleared for takeoff. that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come.
Well, good afternoon, everyone. Our stories today range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, a.k.a. the Whisperliner. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Be sure to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T and just click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not begun yet. Many of our listeners just call into the show 213-816-1611. This will put you on your producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join in our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk to one of our hosts. Now let's go up to uh, New York and talk to Mike Scott. Mike, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thanks, Don. Last week in Episode 9, we shared uh, repartee stories on three Eastern captains, Captain Van Huss, Captain Gil Waller, both very different but very independent and from the norm. Another captain who marched to his own drummer was Captain Oladad Hoover, who made a living in the air but lived on the water. Here the story is written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. The first story our producer has for us today could be, have a title of another TV hit show, but with a different mode of transportation, the old TV series, Car 54, Where Are You? Would you be, how would you be uh, with this airplane 851, Where Are You? Is, uh, Mr. Producer, tell us how this airliner can go missing. This is from the 2001 issue of Repartee. It was written by Captain Bill Pappy, and the title is Airplane 851, Where Are You? It was March 9, 1984, and I had just checked, a, checked in at Atlanta for a three-day sequence. All that was scheduled on this day was a nonstop Atlanta-Providence leg, followed by a 12-hour layover. The forms agent advised that Atlanta Maintenance wanted to know if we would test hop the plane scheduled for the trip. As most remember, test hops were voluntary, and I discussed the request with First Officer Gilbert and Second Officer Harvey. Both agreed to do it, and I phoned the maintenance supervisor. He told me that the plane was just out of the hangar, where a pressurization problem had been corrected, but Miami wanted a test flight flown before any passengers were carried. He added that the plane was on the gate, fueled, and ready to go. Second Officer Harvey went to the gate and asked the forms agent for the paperwork for the flight. It had been given a flight number, 2301, but there was no flight plan, plan in the papers. When questioned about the flight plan, the agent said that neither he nor the computer file flight plan for test stops. Well, that's no big deal. We can just get Atlanta Approach Control to 
let us fly in their airspace while doing what we needed to do quickly in return. We met 2nd Officer Harvey in the jetway, and he told us that a man from engineering was going to accompany us. In the Ford galley stood a guy in a coat and tie with a briefcase and a clipboard. He explained that he needed to see the airplane at flight level 370 and that he had this two-way or two-page checklist of items to go through with 2nd Officer Harvey. The list included shutting down the air conditioning packs and lots of other stuff. Well, so much for a little spin around the pattern in Atlanta. We needed to file a flight plan of some kind in order to do this, and we needed to do it now. The forms agent had already told me that he was he has no dealings with flight plans of this kind, so I figured it was up to me to just get it done. I went into the gate area and phone Atlanta Flight Service and told the briefer that I wanted to file an IFR flight plan. The briefer said he was ready to copy and I launched off. November 851 EA, a Boeing 727-A, true airspeed 475 knots, departing Atlanta in 25 minutes, requesting flight level 370 gave him a requested route of flight to Jacksonville and back to Atlanta and told him to put in the remarks section that no landing would be made in Jacksonville and finished all the required information that included my name, address, and phone number. And I hung up. Back in the cockpit, we did the checklist. First Officer Gilbert told Atlanta Clearance Delivery what was going on and we soon soon had the clearance for November 4851, or that's November 851 EA, in hand. Engines were started, we powered back, and we were on our way to nowhere at flight level 370. Since this was a no regular flight and 2nd Officer Harvey was busy with the engineer, none of us called in any out or off times to the company as was required. None of us monitored the company radio frequency as into the night we climbed while the guys in the back were working their way through the two pages on that clipboard. About three quarters of the way to Jacksonville, it was decided that we would head back to Atlanta while the remainder of the checks and tests were completed. Back on the ground in Atlanta, second officer called for a gate. Where have you guys been? was the response. Just as we cleared the gate area, a decision had been made to use another airplane for the Atlanta Providence flight, and the company had been trying to get ATC, or anybody, to contact us and tell us to return. We did not answer calls on the company frequencies, and ATC had no record of an Eastern 2301 on any of their frequencies because we were on file as November 851EA. Plain old November 851EA, a Boeing 727-A, being flown by some guy from Gainesville, Georgia, who usually filed flight plans for a white and red Comanche 250. We had quite simply disappeared 
with aircraft 851 to parts totally unknown for one hour and 35 minutes. Anyway, since we had been found, we were to get to the gate where our aircraft had been parked, fueled, pre-flighted, and loaded with the people. We heard to the gate, and after a brief explanation, brief explanation to the passengers about where their mystery flight crew had been, we were off and had a nice flight to Providence. Airplane 851 had also successfully completed a very thorough test of its pressurization system, and I never heard a word about why I had disappeared for over one and a half hours with a Boeing 727. Good story. Should something like this happened today, perhaps we could find it out in the hot desert floor amongst hundreds of abandoned airliners. Chuck, how about <laughs> our next Eastern captain? Well, Mike, it's, it's about another Eastern captain who had the best possible assignment during World War II, an Army pilot's dream, teaching women how to fly airplanes. Mr. Producer, what's the story here all about? A Place Called Sweetwater by Captain Bill Malone. Excitement mounted at the Navy training base as information filtered down from the operations office that one of the Air Corps' first-line pursuit aircraft, the Republic P-47 Thunderbolt, would be landing for refueling. The opportunity of seeing this fighter up close was exciting enough, but a woman pilot a member of WASP, of the WASP, was flying it. The WASP, or Women's Air Force Service Pilots, as it was called, had its beginning when Jacqueline Cochran, the famous American aviatrix, convinced Captain Hap Arnold of the Army Air Forces that women could handle non-combat flying duties such as ferrying planes, towing targets, breaking in new engines, or testing repaired planes. Our country was pitifully unprepared at the outbreak of World War II. They destroyed our Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Our B-17s and P-40s parked wingtip to wingtip at Clark, and the airfields were easy prey for the attacking Japanese warplanes. Manila and Bataan had fallen. Few of us had the necessary skills to aid the war effort. We pressed everyone who knew how to fly into service for the purpose of training new pilots. Time was of such an essence that a military pilot would not be spared to go out to the factory and ferry his plane back to his squadron. It was for this reason the women pilots of the WASP were so vital to the outcome of the war, and the American public will be forever grateful for their contribution. Walt Disney in Hollywood created Fifanella, the wasp mascot. Avenger Phelan Sweetwater, Texas became the only all-female Army air base in American history, and this was where our former REPA president, Gib Guerin, trained members of the wasp to fly military airplanes. 
Other Reapins who participated in this endeavor were Dick Corges, Ed Wyrick, Don Smith, Don Clifford, Don Landry, and K.V. Willingham, Willingham. The women trainees referred to the place as Cochran's Convent. They came from all over the country and from all occupations, teachers, actresses, secretaries, journalists, heiresses, and housewives, to mention a few. Some had husbands listed as missing in action. They had to have at least a private pilot's license and 35 flying hours to qualify. All had one thing in common. They loved to fly. There was plenty of opportunity during the six and a half months they spent while receiving training, almost identical to that of the aviation cadets. Not only was the training harsh, the summer heat and constant wind was severe. It snowed in the winter. Gib Guerin recalls the rash of forced landings by male cadet pilots as the word spread that there were girl pilots at Avenger Field. Out of necessity, they closed to all outside traffic except in emergencies, and the WASP trainees turned all their attention to the task. At the completion of their training, they went immediately to the factory to accept their assignments. The big thunderbolt soared across our Navy base with a deep, throaty roar from its big Pratt & Whitney engine. It laid over it laid over into a lazy bank, crossed the runway threshold at idle power, and made a perfect three-point landing. Every eye was on this sleek and streamlined airplane as it taxied up to the chocks and the propeller came to a stop. The pilot took off her helmet, revealing her long, chestnut-colored hair that fell down around her shoulders. Confined to the Navy base for an extended period, we thought she was an angel sent from heaven. As we looked at our little open cockpit trainers and compared them with her powerful, streamlined fighter, we felt that surely we could master the coordination of the stick and rudder, which for many of us was as difficult as rubbing your stomach and patting your head simultaneously. After refueling, every hand was up to wave goodbye as she took off. All of us had a feeling of admiration for her splendid flying performance and a feeling of gratitude for the encouragement she gave us by simply being there. We're grateful to Gib Guerin for performing a vital service for our country at the outbreak of the war because he began teaching the pilots of the WASP to fly the sophisticated, advanced airplanes of the military and for giving us a glimpse into a place called Sweetwater. Don't we have a song in, in the music archives about the, a perfect job? Holding hands at midnight Neath the starry sky Nice work if you can get it 
And you can get it if you try Strolling with the one girl Sigh and sigh after sigh Nice work if you can get it And you can get it if you try Was that me? Oh yes. Okay, we got uh, wake me up while I'm while we're at it here. <laughs> nice work indeed. Put me in coach. That must have been uh, a top assignment for any war. <laughs> yeah, I've been to a lot of airplanes were declaring emergencies trying to get into Sweetwater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know that story was written by Captain Bill Malone and uh, and of uh, that of his best friend because Gib Garin was that. He was Bill Malone's best friend. Uh, Gib was just one of many stories that Bill wrote and placed in repartee during the years as editor of the magazine that I served. And I interviewed Bill and Gib when they were inducted into the Reaper Hall of Fame. Bill told me that every morning after his cup of coffee, he would call Gib and say, Top the morning to you, Gib. What's going on today? And Gib confirmed this when I interviewed him later. Two great guys to fly with, and I'm so glad I flew many trips with them on the L-1011. There was never a dull trip with either one of them. Um, I've got uh, Jim Holder on the line. Jim, do you have any experiences with either one of those two guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. I flew on the 1011 with uh, Gib to Seattle. Uh, I flew on the 727 with Bill Malone all over the place. And yeah. uh, they were very pleasant guys to fly with. And, of course, everybody knew about Bill having two wristwatches, one on each arm. And the story was, if you asked him why he did that, is that his daddy worked for the railroad and the, the trains had to come and go on an exact time schedule. And he was absolutely con- determined that the eastern... 727s when he was a captain was going to be doing the same thing. So he had two watches. They weren't cheap watches either, and they weren't small. They were big. And he would he would go as soon as he sat down in the cockpit. He'd go to www you know Fort Collins, Colorado, and he would simonize. And I like to say that word, not synchronize. Simonize both watches to wwb Fort Collins, Colorado, and just laugh and carry on about it. Well, yeah. you know, you know, he had these big old long arms too, and oh, when you yeah. take off and you climb up the 727 and you get up that cold air and you tend to feel, you know, you worry about water in the fuel and all that, so you had to boil oil, which is you know, running the fuel through oil heat exchanger to keep the ice from forming up, and you did it every second off, you did it every 30 minutes uh, yeah. up there below a certain degree. Well, old Bill, you'd be flying along with him, and uh, second officer, if he wasn't real sharp on time, old Bill would just look at his clock and say, oh, my God, and reach back there all the way across there and turn the uh, fuel heat on. And this went on and on and on, and I said, second officer, they, I think they got a little tired of it. And this one guy flying with him, and he bought an alarm clock, wind-up alarm clock, and he set it up, and we're going to Seattle out there, you know, and flying along at 37,000 feet. 
And all of a sudden, you hear this ding, ling, 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 like go off. <laughs> and it's an old fuel heat. And Bill would turn around, you know, and look at him. The next 30 minutes later, ding, ling, 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 ling. Bill slipped over him. And he said, I think he's making fun of me. <laughs> oh, boy, that was fun, yeah. 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 Well, you know, traveling, uh, flying out there with both of them, uh, Bill Malone had a car there. He It was a Plymouth, and uh, he used to call it uh, – um, the car that uh, so many came across <laughs> over, over uh, you know, across the pond, that is. And uh, and Gib Guerin and I bought a car out there together. And there was one other guy, and I can't think of who it was, that went in with us. And the three of us owned this station wagon that uh, any time we were on a trip, uh, we got the use of that station wagon. And it uh, gave me many good trips into the Oregon area. Portland area and um, a lot of fun but uh, they were great guys really super guys to fly with yeah. so Mike well, hey, Neil, beyond, yeah before you get Go going I want to get back to the uh, the gals flying the airplanes in World War II uh, yeah. you remember I did a PowerPoint and the PowerPoint was for Don Till when he was the president of REPA in Chattanooga I think that would have been the uh, 06, or whatever it was, it was 05, something like that. And trying to fill out that PowerPoint to be about 40 minutes, I decided to have something in there about those Wascals. And I contacted uh, out in Texas, I've forgotten exactly where, Harlington, I think it is. That's where they have their uh, organization, yeah. the daughters of, I guess, and granddaughters of now of those gals. And I was able to get some good information and some good pictures for the PowerPoint as time goes by. And I found out, and I even mentioned there's one where this girl, it's a picture, there are two famous pictures of those gals. One of them, she's standing on the wing, the sun's coming up, and she's got a, a parachute that's kind of hangs you sat on, you know, and when you sit up, it sort of hangs down behind your leg. And she's a good-looking blonde gal, and it looks like she's getting ready to go fly. And I mentioned that on the, to the lady out there who was the daughter of uh, one of them. And she said, sadly, you know, she said that girl got all that publicity, but she didn't make it. She did not make it all the way through the program, one of the few that didn't make it. And you may remember there's another famous picture of one of the gals sitting on the tail of the horizontal stabilizer of a T-6 or something, I guess. And she's smiling at the camera. And she, at that time, when I did that show, that research back in 2004 or five or something like that, they told me that she was very famous. And that picture was on the cover of Life magazine. And that she had do, did it through the war effort. That many times she flew airplanes and had lived a very long life and had just died about a year before I was making inquiry to them out there. And I was able to mention that, I think, in the show, that she had just passed away very recently. But she was on the front page of Life front cover of Life magazine of World War II. Yeah, uh, Jim, I might have met her at, uh, Seab at Sebring at the Light Sports Aircraft Show. Uh, mm -hmm. I went there for about five years straight, and the last few years that I did go, they had her, and they brought her out. Uh, she was in her mm -hmm. 90s, 
and yeah. uh, autograph mm-hmm. books, and I bought one of her books, and I've misplaced it. I wish the heck I could find it. But uh, mm-hmm. the, she was one of the last living wasp uh, alive. Right. And you, right. So you say mm-hmm. their organization is out in Harlingen, uh, Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, we made a $500 a day no- donation to Reaper Dead and appreciation for yeah. the help they got gave me in putting a, that portion of the magazine. It was about a five-minute part of that magazine. I mean, five-minute part of the show, the PowerPoint yeah. show. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought well, we might have in. to do a story on on the the, the women of the Air Force, uh, the uh, WASP, and uh, okay, very good. So, uh, Mike, how about continuing yeah. here? Easton was an airline that made it easy to make lasting friendships. Captain Neil and Captain Jim, we know you can attest to that. Now we have tried to get this story in for the past three shows. Here's one about miracles, literacy, biblical, Shakespeare, and Shakespearean flight. How about a short musical selection from this story, Mr. Producer? Miraculous Literary Biblical Shakespearean Flight by Captain Hank Foley in the 1998 issue of Repartee. Pilots the world over love to exchange stories and jokes about their jobs. We've all done our share and still do in our magazine, Repartee. For a change, I'd like to recall some ideas I've come across in reading and listening to non-airline people. I've been saddened to observe that the fascination which people used to have for airplanes seems to have disappeared from among the traveling public, and I suppose there's no mystery about it. So much discomfort is involved that most people are glad when it's over, and it's no wonder that the miracle of flight is forgotten. The jetway is my biggest letdown. It protects us from the wind and rain, but the passenger never gets to see the airplane he's flying in. Remember in years past, walking from the gatehouse and across the ramp, looking up at a beautiful constellation with those magnificent wings far above your head, the mighty engines and props and those three-tailed fins balancing the delicate curved sweep of the fuselage. In a novel by Robin White, angle of attack, there is a dedication that recalls or reads as follows. Some people maintain that the romance of flight is dead, that flying is nothing more than in a crowded bus with bad meals, shrinking seats, and lost baggage. But they're wrong. The dream is alive because all flight is miraculous. The kid at the airport fence knows it. The student Roaring down the runway, Solo understands. So does a man who has painstakingly built his own airplane, who sees the earth fall away for the very first time beneath a wing built by his own two hands. The instrument pilot knows it as he plays a game of electronic pinball in the clouds 
betting his life on his skill. The acrobatic competitor slicing the sky with the deafness of a surgeon knows it. So does a Boeing captain who sweats to make it all look effortless. Most of all, the wise old pelicans who have seen wood and fabric become a tower of technology soaring from Kitty Hawk to the moon knows it. Even if they find it hard to say the words, all flight is miraculous. An attractive young English woman who grew up in Central Africa and learned to fly and then, in describing her experiences, discovered she had literary talent. Her books even made the bestseller list. Some of the thoughts of Beryl Markham are new and fresh, possibly because she was so far from the jaded sophistication of many people today. She writes, It is too much that with all those pedestrian centuries behind us, we should, in a few decades, have learned to fly. It is too heady a thought, too proud a boast. We fly, but we have not conquered the air. Nature presides in all her dignity, permitting us the study and the use of such of her forces as we may understand. It is when we presume to intimacy, having been granted only tolerance, that the harsh blow falls across our impudent knuckles, and we rub the pain, staring upward, startled by our own ignorance. For all my joys of flying, I ought to thank God, and I do, though indirectly. I thank Jeffrey de Havilland, who designed my indomitable gypsy, and who, after all, must have been designed by God in the first place. A flight instructor friend told me of an experience with a student who was also a clergyman, an unusual person in many ways. He was up-to-date and well-informed in modern politics, history, and literature, and also possessed an alert, intelligent mind. He felt that aviation was a big factor in modern life, and he wanted to participate. Since this student had flown before in friends' airplanes, the instructor realized he didn't need as much takeoff and landing practice as a usual student, and so he decided to round out the training with a little higher altitude flying. Most students spend all their time circling the airport and practice area at low altitude. Our instructor and student climbed up to 12,000 feet, and then there appeared the first weakness in the student's previous performance. At the higher altitude, he was obviously nervous and apprehensive. He couldn't explain it, but he was just simply uncomfortable and ill at ease when up so high. The instructor, no psychologist, assumed it was some odd form of acrophobia, the fear of heights. Back on the ground, the instructor tried to alleviate the problem by using the student's own background, namely religion. He recalled from his Sunday school days the last sentence 
in the Gospel of St. Matthew. The Lord, parting from his disciples for the last time, said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the world. He quoted the words and reminded the student that the Lord is with him at high altitude, the same as on the ground. And so there was no cause to be fearful just because he was up high. The student thought thought it over for a while and then answered, I'm not so sure about that. Note that the Lord said, Lo, I am with you always. Sometimes a person with no literary pretensions will coin a phrase that a professional writer might be proud of, like the young pilot's sweetheart who said, Every time a fly a, a plane flies over my heart runs to the window, or the man living beneath the takeoff path of an Air Force base, who described the jet fighters passing over as a swallow towing the nose of a freight train. One time I took a person, a professor, a friend for a ride in the Pitts special very early to take advantage of the of the cool morning air. To impress him, I I used a high-powered, high-speed takeoff and climb, which in a 260-horsepower pits means almost straight up, just as the sun was coming over the horizon. As we leveled off, he spoke over the microphone. Like to the lark at break of day arising, from sudden, sullen earth sings hymns, at Heaven's Gate, which, of course, is from one of Shakespeare's sonnets, number 29, considered considered by many as among the most beautiful lines in the language. I can hear Don Cole muttering, Good grief, Hank, is nothing sacred? I'm usually quite confident about grammar when I use the term evasive action, On the part of a pilot avoiding a collision, one of my listeners corrected me and said it was a misuse of the word evasive. I was stubborn and went to a dictionary, and he was right. The word evasive means deceitful or tricky with no connotation of dodging traffic. Another bet I would have lost when Gina Yeager and Dick Rutan made their amazing nonstop flight around the world. Many referred to it as the longest cross-country flight in history. I would have agreed without question. But in the Aircraft Owners and Pilots magazine, one of their regular columnists pointed out it was actually a local flight. In order to be recognized as a cross-country flight, the aircraft must land at a different airport from the place of takeoff. Finally, so as not to leave Eastern out completely, I'll repeat the immortal words of our astronaut Frank Borman when he was picked up after splashdown. When one of the seamen on the recovery vessel Joe Villa asked if there was any life on the moon. 
Colonel Borman is said to have answered. A little on Saturday night, but it's pretty quiet during the week. <laughs> Interesting. Well, we finally got the biblical. <laughs> I've been yeah. trying to do this for the last three times and decided, well, we're going to do it. It's it's good writing. Hank was a very good writer, very good good stories. He was the editor for a while, Hank Foley. All right, guys, what you want to talk about now? Well, we got a little uh, something we have to uh, bring up that you mentioned in the email, uh, Captain Neal. That's, that's right. Uh, yes, yesterday was uh, kind of a milestone. We had uh, Charles Lindbergh. It was 93 years ago yesterday morning, May 20th, 1927, that he took off in the Spirit of St. Louis, NX-211, made by Ryan Aircraft. And uh, it was 7.52 in the morning when he took off and uh on a side note my dad and my my grandfather were watching him he was, they were standing there when he took off and that airplane had 450 gallons of fuel in it and they had a flight that uh that lasted uh, 33 and a half hours and they he flew 3610 statute miles and he always called himself and the airplane we as he did said in his book and he actually landed in Libreje at 10.22 p.m. on May 21st, which is today, which would make it 4.22 today, Standard Time, and 5.22 Daylight Standard Time. And there was 15, uh, 15 150,000 people there to, to greet him when he landed at Libreje, and there was millions in New York when he came back. And on another side note was uh, when he spotted the Eiffel Tower before he headed for Libre and that evening uh, my grandparents and my and my aunt and my mother uh, saw him fly over the Eiffel Tower before he landed at Libre but not a lot of people kind of uh, celebrate this you don't hear much about it on the TV anymore and they don't ever play the Spirit of St. Louis on the uh, yeah. on the on the TV anymore I, I have it on tape and play it quite often so uh do you remember the movie when that, it came out? Who played as Jimmy uh, Jimmy Stewart? I that think. was that was Jimmy Stewart, and the movie came out yeah. in 1957. Yeah. And was and it was, that, was it because of the fly that he called it? We he had a fly with him. No, he he, uh, he called it we because it, it was the uh, it was himself in the airplane. They were the team. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, and that was, uh, you know, of course, uh, at that particular time, Roosevelt Field, when the in '57 had been uh, had been changed, had that particular field had, cl- had closed, so they uh, basically used Zahn's Airport, which is where I used to keep my old Cessna at out here on Long Island, which was an old. Uh, it's it looked similar to Roosevelt Field. So they used that for the filming, and the airplane it was in there was the sister ship, which is in the Smithsonian. Yeah. I mean, not in the Smithsonian. I think it's in the Air Force Museum. Yeah. I think in the movie, uh, the uh, they did show a fly, and it was yes, yeah. they did, kept, yeah. it kept him awake, didn't it? Yeah. Well, he kept mentioning about, uh, you know, if a fly lands on a flying airplane, it's extra weight. So he wanted him flying around <laughs> inside a flying airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And then oh, he was smart time. because he, he got out while there was still land. He didn't want to get out in the middle of the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> but a great story. But that was uh, Lindbergh was the one who inspired my dad to fly. He had just turned 14 years old, and they drove up from Philadelphia to see uh, see him take off. Mm. Wow. Great movie, great uh, accomplishment and everything else. And, of course, he's buried in Maui, Hawaii, and down about 50 yeah. feet down. And his wife uh, also was uh, famous for yes. her writing. And Murrow, yeah. And, yeah, and Murrow, yeah. yeah. Very interesting. But you could you well, could go on and on with all of the information about that, uh, his whole life and uh, everything else if, if if anybody hasn't seen that movie i've surprisingly enough i've i've run across guys that have been in aviation all their lives and they never saw that movie i says i uh-huh. thought that was a prerequisite you know i remember where i was when i saw it it just come out i was in college at uh, mars hill north carolina where i met my wife peggy and uh, <clears throat> i took her to the movie in Asheville. And uh, we, it was a Baptist college, and uh, you know you you couldn't dance or do anything, but I managed to sneak her off because I had a car. One of the few students at Mars Hill had had a car, because I was living in Miami and had driven all the way up there. But I'll never forget when we went into the lobby to get popcorn or whatever, candy or whatever. There was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham had brought his wife, and they were, too, seeing that movie, like Peggy and I. And Billy Graham was living in Montreat, North Carolina, real close to Asheville, just down the road. And uh, didn't know how important he was. I should have, but uh, I recognized him because I was a ministerial student back in those days. Uh But, uh, yeah... Asheville, well, that was, of course, the uh, where Bob Morgan was born, the pilot of the Memphis Bell, the, the okay. famed one. And I, when he were, during the war effort, I guess he did. Uh, there was a church or something there that he flew over and did a did a knife edge <laughs> thing between two buildings in a church or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Uh, I want to ask Jim Holder, how is the FRT magazine coming along. Are you getting um, some contributions to the uh, storytelling or yes, whatever? Yes, yes. I'm. I'm. I was worried that I'm not one. You know, the first one that newsletter had 20 pages, and and a lot of the pages were nothing more than photographs of all the stuff that was donated that we're going to have for the auction to raise money for OA Captain OA Fish's. Uh, Mountain home camp for boys and girls in North Carolina, and that took up a lot of space. As y'all, those of you who saw the magazine or the repartee newsletter, yeah. Yeah. and uh, I was wondering what I was going to have in this one because uh, the next one, which is going to be required, because you have to have the life publication before the convention or reunion for the bylaws to have the list of those candidates for office for the next year. And yeah. so well, we got to have another one just to, to fulfill that because there was nothing about it in the uh, one that just came out. 
And uh, but I've got uh, some interesting stuff already, and I was worried about uh, uh, not having anything to mount anything. And right now, I'm, I think I'm trying to keep it at not over 20 pages, you know, for for whatever purpose uh, yeah. to make the same size as the other one. But uh, I've had a couple of things I've found that I think will be very interesting to the readers. Do you and, have the uh, same team that, working uh, with you to put it together? Uh, the gal that does such a who? good job of the the oh, person Kelly that Frizzell? you had. Yeah, she's still oh, with you. Oh man, I yes, I wouldn't I wouldn't even think of doing anything if I didn't have her <laughs> with me. I mean, they, that repart thing would have died years ago if I had had <laughs> Kelly Brazil. She's my <laughs> graphics designer. For those of you who don't know, and. Uh, and uh, I know when I had it, they gave me the Hall of Fame thing down there because uh, I saw that Risa Rick, Rick had to came on to do the Repartee magazine, and I had that uh, also the uh, the first show I did as time goes by, and I invited her and her husband to come down there, and I paid for their room, their breakfast, everything because it. And I even mentioned that when I first got up, to accept it is that. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Kelly, Kelly Frizzell, and I had her stand up for She is a oh, yeah. darling and a wonderful person anyhow yeah. and puts up with me. So, uh, yeah, she's definitely going to be there, and, and, you know, we're still paying her. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's a business, but uh, I think she'd probably do it for free if yeah. I asked her to. Uh, when is the reunion? Uh, it's going to be August the 20th. Let me look again. I don't want to put out bad information. It's in August, August 26th, okay. I think. Let me look here. Yes, August 26th. Let me put on my glasses. Uh, 27th. 26th and 27th. Uh, Reaper Board meets on the 25th. The 26th is a ladies' luncheon and all that kind of stuff and the business meeting. And then, uh... 27th, we have the banquet. Yep, it's going to be there at the Kennesaw, there. same place we did last year. Very good, wonderful very place. good. Free parking. I, I, got, a, to get to I got a little food. suggestion. Mm-hmm. Anybody? Okay, I, I got. A, I had a suggestion. You know, you're talking about what to put into the uh, the REPA newsletter. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think it might be a good idea. Uh, somewhere along the line, uh, I mean, uh, between... Uh, Captain Jim and Captain Neil, I mean, you guys have been so instrumental in all of this, uh, uh, the the Reaper magazine and uh, now the newsletter and everything all over these years. They should, you guys should have a few pictures and a little uh, biography about you guys from your from your early days and all that stuff, which would be, uh, I think, it would be nice for the readers to see who's who's been doing all of this. Well, and you know, Mike. Mike and Jim, I've got this in mind, and, and I don't know how long it would be, and I don't know whether I'd have any uh, much time to put uh, put into it, but I've often thought that there ought to be a history of the magazine itself because we had such great writers and editors mm-hmm. like uh, Bill Malone and Hank Foley and Gene Ramsey and, and uh, Rollo Owens and, golly, Pete, you know, it would be great to tell the story about that magazine. Because, you know, it ran smoothly. Uh, I passed the torch on to you because I just couldn't put in the time that was needed to put that together. 
uh, three well, inches per month. It, it I mean, does per take year. Time, there's no doubt yeah. about it. And uh, but I've had good contributors, uh, guys that uh, well, Jim Blackburn. He's been one oh, of my yeah. favorite contributors. Uh, he's good given stories. me uh, articles. And, uh, like you said, Bill Pappy. You know, he yeah. uh, contributed. Yeah. Uh, I've had good people. Yeah. Too. Yeah, these are all good. Out. You know, they're all good contributors, like you say. But I mean, you guys mm-hmm. are kind of, uh, you know, you kind of put you're the catalyst. You kind of put it all together. So that's why I kind of suggested that maybe you wanted to put yeah. a couple pictures and a little biography or something about your, the guys that were were the adhesive of these uh, publications. Yeah. Well, you don't well, want to hear my story about when Bill Malone turned it over to me. That's a story within itself about John Engel and I sitting there waiting for each signature to come off that press. And then mm-hmm. at the end of putting them all together and stapling them. And John was mm-hmm. at that time, I think about 88 or 89 years old. And, um, and uh, I was running a real estate company and, and uh, it was, uh, it was quite, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. Had to get somebody, and luckily I found Jim Holder. <laughs> well, I, where, where it really happened is that he called me up and said, I need some ink. And I said, what the hell's ink? And he said, I need some ink. You need to write some articles for me. And this was back when he was doing it as editor. And so I wrote some articles for him, you know, the gooseneck oiler and, and the yeah. one about running out of gas in Iowa and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And uh, so he said, uh, you know, you're just going to have to take over. I, I just can't do it anymore. And I said, I don't know anything about being an editor. And uh, he told me, well, it's all you got to do is get these signatures. I thought he'd get a bunch of people to sign some papers or something. Said, what the hell has that got to do with making a magazine? And the signature said, no, it's a group like eight pages or 12 pages or something. I didn't know diddly squat about it. I'll tell you the truth. Well, I found uh, one of the fellows. I don't know how I met him, but uh, from Hartley Press, which was uh, the biggest publishing company in Jacksonville, Florida, and they have won many, many Eddie Awards. They call the, you know, like the Mm -hmm. musical awards, the Emmys and the Oscars and all that. And in the magazine or in the publication business, it's called the Eddie Award. And uh, I mm-hmm. guess maybe for editor or whatever, but I found him and and uh, what a what an artist he was. He had won so many awards and and uh, uh, for some reason, oh, I sold him a condominium up in uh, up in um, uh, Nassau County over at uh, Fernandina Beach, and um, he had a condo there, and we talked about that, and he liked aviation and he said well i work for hartley press he said i do some stories from time to time but mostly i'm an editor he said i put things together and so he took it from the bill malone um, way of saddle stitching it and putting it together and he added a spine to it and and then we added columns to it and so the progression of that magazine is is interesting in in itself you know from newsletter form all the way to uh, I think a quality magazine and, Jim and back Moore. to the newsletter yeah and back to newsletter <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well you know another thing that helped me out is my daughter worked for a big printing company over by the Atlanta airport and when I had to take over this job as editor and everything I told her about it she said well I guarantee you we can print the magazine for you, you know, she, she worked for them 
and, uh, and uh, she doesn't anymore. She got married, and moved away, but uh, they 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 did a great job for me. Yeah. Color yeah. And, uh, and, uh, at a pretty pretty reasonable price too, I thought. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, kind of like life in general when you say in the newsletter to the magazine back to the newsletter. It's yeah. like when we're born, born with no hair, wearing a diaper, and go out the same way. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to get to this uh, area code that I have on my board here. 239, where are you calling from? Area code 239. Okay. Only the shadow knows. <laughs> I'm a one button. Yeah. There you go. Well, I wanted well, to get can, everyone. Can I put a can I put a tease in for the next the next one you do? Yeah. Uh do you remember some time ago I asked the question, why does a DC seven with thirty three fifties have four bladed props? Why does a constellation ten forty nine G's, Super G's, have 3350 and the three-bladed prop. And I accidentally, reading up, you know, I like to read, read up on Connie's, but, but I flew them in the military and I flew them at Eastern. And I love the airplane. And uh, and I was reading something deep down into something. I can't even know what it was. And all of a sudden, I realized I was uh, reading and addressed that very question. Why did Connie have a three-bladed prop? And the DC seven, a four bladed prop on the same uh with the same engine. And I mentioned this what maybe seven or eight months ago and nobody seemed to, you know, really know exactly why. And I think I I found out why. Well I'm teasing for the next show. Oh <laughs> well, for one thing it runs smoother. <laughs> <laughs> oh me. Yeah, can I can I hold that off to the next show, Neil? Did I lose Neil? Uh, Neil no, I there? had my I had my microphone on mute, so you had to do a little coughing yourself. there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you, you muted yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you 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 can do that, Jim. We'll we'll count on you. Okay, it's it's not yeah. a big big thing, but I just couldn't understand why, and I and I believe that. I'm sorry. It's a reason. It's a simple reason, but I I'll tell you later. Okay. Well, uh, can you tell us whether it was uh, Hamilton Standard? Uh, well, uh, I don't remember. Come in. Uh, uh, Hamilton Standard is on the seven, I think, but I don't know what it was on the county. It might have been. I don't know. I yeah, heard Curtis, Curtis, uh, Curtis Electric. I, I heard, hang on a second, guys. 239, well, you. are you trying to get in? I'm trying to turn two, this off. No, don't turn Mark? it off. Who, who okay. is this? Can you tell me your name? Oh, don't don't turn it off. We've got you on the radio, two, area code 239. Okay. Uh, now, what was everyone trying to say at once? Talking about <laughs> props there. The Connie had the Curtis Electric on it. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. It did, huh? Okay. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. All, All right. right. Uh, Chuck, did you ever work on propellers? 
Only the little planes. Okay. When I was working for fixed brace operators down in Homestead. Yeah. That uh, we'd take them on and off. And actually, I I had, had one guy he called he called a shop there and he wanted somebody to come out and look at his prop and it had a, a small ding in it. And he says, well, how much is that going to cost to fix it? And I says, wait a minute. And I went and got one of my files, and I filed it. You come says, out with I didn't know rest. you could do that. You, I said, you can do it, but it has to be a very small file. <laughs> you didn't use a wood rest, did you? <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. You get that prop so un- unbalanced to be pitiful. Here's a good question for you guys, all you airplane people. Does anybody know what a harmonic imbalance is? Harmonic imbalance? Harmonic imbalance. Right. Anytime you you listen to something or watch the video and you you close the home app and you can still hear it, but you don't see it, always look at the top. Oh, we got a private conversation going on. on there, though. See that green bar? That's normally not up there. So go ahead and press that green bar. Doris, is that you? Is that Doris? Uh, Neil? Yes. Been trying to get you, Doris. Well, I got on here accidentally because I'm computer illiterate. And uh, and so here I am without a thing to say, except uh, (laughs) for some reason or other, I managed this and I could never ever do it again. How are you? I'm doing fine. Do you did you uh, uh, record what you did right? Because we want you to come back. No, I didn't because I haven't the foggiest the foggiest notion what I did do. I did recognize the two three nine number and I thought, oh my gosh, I bet I'm gone there. So anyway, I love hearing your voice, Neil, and uh, uh, you know it's always fun to hear you reminisce and. And uh, all of the the wonderful stories, and and uh, you said something that caught my attention, and when you said all flight is miraculous, uh, do you recall saying that? I remember reading it. Yes, I did say that. Yes, and I, that, that just struck my imagination that uh, no matter how far we come and. Uh, how advanced uh, all flight is miraculous. And uh, yeah. with that, I, I'm going to get off of here before I embarrass <laughs> myself. But I just wanted to tell you, if I if I know how to get off, <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> are you, are you, you're, on your, you're on your phone now. So, uh, Doris, I'll be talking with you uh, again soon, okay? And I hope. All of this stuff is not boring to you, and occasionally there might be a line or two that stands out, and I'm glad that uh, you thought of that. All flight is miraculous. I think that was in that biblical story that I read, and uh, yeah. I think yeah, I think that was by the lady writer. Uh, I can't think of her name right now, but she made that statement. But good having you with us, Doris. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Bye-bye. Talk talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that was nice. Okay, guys. What else what else do you have? 
I have something to ask you, uh, guys. Um, going back to airplanes and pilots, uh, I think it was the movie uh, Midway. It showed uh, actual films that they dubbed into these movies. <clears throat> Excuse me, of Corsair or whatever it was, crash landing on the deck of a carrier. And the pilot that flew that became an Eastern pilot later on in life. Do you know who that was? Because I don't. Yeah, he was flying a, a, a Hellcat, I think, and he was an Eastern pilot. He got burned in that. Yes. I'm trying to think of what his name was, but uh, definitely, definitely, if, if somebody told me his name, I'd recognize it. But he, okay, he so landed I... and, and he skidded and hit the... Uh, the tower, whatever you call it, on an aircraft yeah. carrier, yep. and uh, yep. burst into flame. And he, and, and I think he was based in New York. I don't think he was Miami or Atlanta, but uh, definitely was the pilot on that airplane. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one other thing. Listen, I thought that you had to shut the show off at uh, four o'clock. That's why I said that I would tell you what the the deal about the props. Then, but I can tell you real quick now. I thought you had to hang it up. That's why I was saying I get it next no, time. No, I, I I signed on for an hour and a half. He's sometimes uh, right. it's uh, well, so interesting you. things that we're talking about. Well, it's Go real ahead, quick. Jim. Spend the money. Uh, I was, <laughs> you know, I was wondering why does the Connie have three blade props and the DC seven have the same engine and yet it's got a four bladed prop. And I was reading about the Connie. Anything I can find about a Connie, I read about. And I was reading about it, and they were talking about the the fact that the wings are wider on the Connie, and they were able to get the engines uh, far enough apart because uh, a three-bladed prop is more efficient than a four-bladed prop. If you, the way they described it to me, and what I was reading. And and it it has a it's an aerodynamical thing. I don't claim to understand it, but the fact that the DC seven wing wasn't as long, and they had to get the same power, they had to have a four bladed prop rather than a three. But the three was more efficient because it was the engines were too close to each other on a DC seven, and they had to have a shorter prop. So they had four blades on Zvezdokani. He had a longer blade, which was more efficient, and it had three blades. And it was like everybody in the world knew that, uh, the way the article was read, you know. And they just said, oh, by the way, this is what that is. And, and I thought to myself, well, I guess that makes sense. But if you look at a Connie at 1049 from the nose, those wings, those, you can tell, are longer than the DC-7 wings. And uh, there's no logical. They're no fun it's, to be on when you're trying to fuel them in the rain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the Connie. <laughs> you know, when we checked out as engineer on the Electra's or anything, uh, Neil, you remember this. Yeah. Uh, when I went to Electra, they said, you can you get your, get your little tool kit. And your tool yeah. kit consisted of a pair of gloves, uh, a short screwdriver, and, uh, and a crescent wrench. And we had to get that and a bag to carry them in. And so we all went out to the hardware store, and I bought a screwdriver. And uh, and I bought everything. And I thought to myself, well, what in the world's going on there? And then uh, when uh, 
We came back. The guy said, now, you guys are going to be engineers on the electric. And that little screwdriver, <laughs> that's how you open the fuel caps or something. Somewhere yeah. like that. Now, if you wanted the tiny, your screwdriver would be about a foot long. And I said, well, why do you, why do you need a long one like that? Because keep your butt from sliding off the wing <laughs> when it's icy up in the yard. You, you take that screwdriver and stick it in the wing. Yeah, that's right. And I thought to myself, man, I'm glad I'm an electric engineer, not a <laughs> hey Don, did when you, you do the, the Don? Did you walk? Did you walk the Connie wings too? Oh yeah. Me? Oh yeah. No, no. Don Don Gagnon. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. I was a I was a gentleman flight engineer on the electric. I mean, we didn't yeah. even get our hands dirty except when I had to put oil in that electric and rock. Yeah. order. The king of prop oil. He says when you, when you got that crescent when you got that crescent wrench was was that a, a metric one or a standard one? Well, it depended on what I wanted to do. It fit everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I was that one of the most miserable mornings of my life with all that oil running down my arm and down my pants and filling up my shoes and that ain't I, no exaggeration. I remember when I checked out as an engineer on the Electra. Uh, in ground school, they told you where to buy the tools that you needed. It was across the street uh, mm-hmm. over there on um, on 36th Street. There was a hardware store, and sure enough, mm-hmm. they had uh, Alexa decided she wanted to say something over here. So I'm sorry I'm competing with her. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll never forget. And I think it wrapped around. You had a string that you tied all these tools to, and you put it in your flight bag. and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that was just, uh, those were the days. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. Well, good talking, guys. That was great talking, and uh, enjoyed it, especially Doris. Uh, you coming uh, uh, coming online? That was even uh, better. That was that was. Uh, Neil, can you tell us who Doris talk. is? Doris who? Doris is a friend of mine. I've known her for a long time. She and her husband. Uh, uh, I called her husband Doc because he was a dentist, and he and my brother, a little brother down in Naples area, Bonita Springs, actually, were very good friends. They own a boat together, and and um, I met the the two of them, wonderful couple, uh, Doc and Doris Gillenwaters, and <clears throat> Doc died a few years ago, and uh, Doris is uh, living in, I think she's still in Naples, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, they came up when I had a house up on Lake Lanier, and they came up to visit with me for uh, a trip. I think they were taking up to the mountains or wherever. And mm-hmm. uh, they stopped by, and uh, I gave them use of the little cabin, and and we've been friends for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. All right. mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So she likes her stories, and I always include her in in uh, the scripts to read and maybe even make some suggestions and I, I need all the help I can get. So, um, yeah, we've got some good listeners out there. Great listeners. Well, okay. you do a great job, Neil. Well, we're, we're having fun. That's all. That's all I can say. That's all I'm doing. That's it. That's what it's all about. Trying to stay out of trouble. Yeah. Oh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to play this without landing the airplane. We're going to stay in the air, but we're going to close it out right now. 
our sign-off music. Chuck, how about taking us out of here? All right. Well, I see our sign-off music is playing in the background. So we'll see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, a magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember, the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, when we bring you the patent holders of many aircraft components and design, Monday, May 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. It's time to say so long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. We love, love you, too. Eastern. Thanks a lot, guys. Did you rock me out of your mind? Let me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sun Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wings Slowly fading out of sight Taking you away and leaving me lonely, silver wings, slowly fading out of sight, slowly fading out of sight. See you next Monday, or next Thursday, for the Reaper Radio. See you at the gate. One of them days. Good job, Neil. (laughs) Take care. Thanks a lot. Good guy, guys. Good night. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Yeah.